The ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican contains some of the greatest artwork uh, in the world, painted famously by Michelangelo. Although most people didn't know how beautiful it was until it was recently restored in the early 1990s. So for 400 years, uh, the paintings had been covered by, by soot and grime and by all the candles that they had to use to light the buildings back in the old days, right? And all the candles that the, the worshipers would bring for, for worship, um, not to mention pollution from the city. Um, so for, for centuries, when most people went to the Sistine Chapel, they saw something that looked like this. Dark, muted, not very colorful, not very exciting. Uh, now, Michelangelo was known as a famous sculptor. You know, you've probably seen his famous David. Um, and so people began to conclude that, uh, that Michelangelo was not really that great at colors. He was more of a master of forms. He was more, more of a, a, a master sculptor. He wasn't very good. Uh, and it's too bad that Michelangelo wasn't around for all of these centuries to defend his name and his honor. Because it wasn't until this restoration project that people realized their conclusions about Michelangelo were all wrong. They said he's no Leonardo da Vinci. They said he's no Raphael, but they were wrong. The process of the restoration took about 14 years, and when, now when you walk into the Sistine Chapel, you see something that looks more like this. Yeah, beautiful, bright colors, powerful and passionate, clear and nuanced. It's, it's really incredible. And it was concluded that after this project was done that every book written about Michelangelo would literally have to be rewritten because they had given his reputation such a bad name. They did not give him the honor as, a, as, a, as an artist and painter. It needed to be redeemed. And I would submit to you this morning that this story is a picture of God and His people during the time of exile when Ezekiel was preaching to them. See, God's people, they had lost everything. They had fallen away from God. Their land and temple was in ruins. Uh, and people were concluding the exact wrong things about the God of Israel. Christopher Wright, who I've been quoting uh, um, on Ezekiel quite often, and I will be throughout the sermon, he says, we need to engage our imagination. Picture the Israelite prisoners of war arriving in the countries they passed through on the ghastly journey from fallen Jerusalem into exile, and then eventually in Babylon itself. Local people would, would ask each other, who are these people? These are, these are Israelites from the land of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar has captured their city and deported the survivors. What's the name of their God then? Yahweh, or so I've heard. So they are Yahweh's people, but they've been expelled from Yahweh's land. Yahweh is not much of a God then, is he? No better than the gods of all the other nations our great king has concert, conquered. Glory to Marduk. You see, the defeat of a nation meant the defeat of its God. Far from being the royal priesthood of Yahweh in the midst of the nations, they were roving profaners of His name. I'd like to invite you to follow along with me in your Bibles in Ezekiel chapter 36. Um, and as you're turning there and before we get to the hopeful promise, a quick reminder on why this promise is needed. This is right before the, our text for this morning. God says, I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations, and they were scattered through their countries. 
according, uh, and I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. The people had forsaken God. Jeremiah said that they had cheated on the Lord with all of these idols, and they had shed people's blood, oftentimes sacrificing even their own children to foreign gods. It was an awful time, and God hated the violence. God always hates the violence of humanity. The people had broken their covenant with God, and so God brought upon them the curses of the covenant. They were exiled among the nations of the world. Now, God's people, they were, they were meant to show the world, the surrounding nations, what God, what God is like. But now everyone is drawing the wrong conclusion that the God of Israel is powerless. He's feeble. Or perhaps he doesn't even care about these people. They're drawing the wrong conclusions, just like people did about Michelangelo. But God is going to turn everything around. Just like the Sistine Chapel was restored so people could see the truth, God is going to restore His people so the world can know the truth about who God really is. This is what I'm calling the restoration vision. This promise and prophetic vision, it's, it's so vast and sweeping and magnificent that I cannot limit myself to the typical three-point sermon this morning. I'm not apologizing for that today because I want to intentionally overwhelm you with how amazing this is, how amazing this is. There, there's at least seven parts to this, to this promise that to limit it would be like defacing the Sistine Chapel. We can't limit it. We can't limit it. Thank you. We're not doing that this morning. In fact, the, the biblical scholar Daniel Block, he says that this passage contains the most systematic and detailed summary of Yahweh's restorative agenda in Ezekiel, if not in all of the prophetic books. So we're going to go over the whole vision of God's restoration agenda, the restoration vision. vision. And because now everyone is, is concluding all the wrong things about God, the first order of business is that God will restore honor to His name. He will restore honor to His name. Verse 22 and 23 says, Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says, It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but that for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. I think that's almost, you know, it's almost hilarious language to me. It's like God is making very clear. What you did, you profaned my name, the name that you profaned among them. You are responsible. It's not for your sake that I'm doing this. Essentially, God is saying, I'm not doing this because of you. I'm, I'm going to save you because I need to restore honor to my name, which you are currently causing to be disgraced. The nations are supposed to know that I am the Lord through you. But now they are because of you. Now, the other prophets, especially Isaiah, they, they've already made clear that that yes, God has compassion on us. He wants to redeem us. He rejoices over us like, like a husband rejoicing over his bride. However, through Ezekiel, God gives an important corrective because the most important thing about this restoration is restoring God's glory. 
God's honor among the nations. It's not saying it's unimportant that it's, he wants to redeem us, but the most important thing is God's plan to redeem and save the world by drawing all nations to glorify and worship Him. Now, for humans, it is not good for us to be self-glorifying, but for God, it is never wrong because He is the perfect, pure expression of love, holiness, and justice in the universe. So to draw the world unto glorifying Him is to, do, is to draw people to do what they were created and made to do, which brings them ultimate joy and satisfaction. And so God desires that all would acknowledge Him as the true Creator, that all would come to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And God's own people are jeopardizing this plan. But God's going to fix that. He's going to redeem His name. They're going to stop drawing the wrong conclusions like they did for Michelangelo. They're going to start saying, no, this Yahweh is the real God, and we see it because of what He's doing. And because God is committed to redeeming the world and showing forth His glory in all the earth, God will not abandon His plan to save His people. That means our salvation is built on the secure, eternal purpose of God to draw the nations to Himself in worship. So first and foremost, God's vision is to restore the honor to His holy name. He must show the nations that the gods of the nations are not like Him, that the God of Babylon is not superior to Him, that He is the true Lord of all creation. So that's number one. The second thing God is going to do is that He will return His people to their home. Verse 24 says, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. You see, just by being in exile, they were bringing dishonor to God's name. The, the people around them were concluding that Yahweh is not as powerful as the God of ba- Babylon. He's just as powerless as the other gods. So for God's own glory, as we said, He's returning the people from the countries and bringing them back to their land. And this is really important. The land of Israel, the promised land, was so important to the people of God's identity. This is where Abraham went by faith. This is where Isaac and Jacob were raised and put their hope. This is where Joshua had brought the people after wandering in the wilderness. This is where the judges ruled and where Samuel had led the people. This is where the temple was constructed and where the people had worshipped their God. This is where the kings and David and all the other kings after him built up the kingdom. This is where people's family, their ancestors, had lived and farmed and raised their families and worshipped for centuries. I think every one of us can identify that we all long for a place that feels like home. And this is what the promised land was, but even more so for Israel. And God said, I'm bringing you back home. I'm bringing you back to the land I promised. In order to do so, God has to cleanse them from their sins, from the things that are keeping them out of the land. So this is number three, that God will remove their sins. Verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Now, the people of God in the Old Testament, they were cognizant that one had to be in a state of cleanness and ritual purity to enter the presence of God in the temple. The entire sacrificial system and all of the rules about washing and cleansing, these were about being able to be in the direct presence of God in His holy temple. So sin, and also things that aren't sin, but things associated with death, made one unclean, 
unfit to be in the presence of God. You know, I remember as a kid, I, I loved playing outside. I loved playing sports. I still like playing sports. I don't really have the time for it anymore, uh, which is really sad. Uh, but as a kid, I would, I would, play, I would play outside, and, I, and I, would get, I would get so dirty. I would get muddy. I'd have mud in my shoes. I'd have dirt in my fingernails. I would have grass stains on my clothes. I just looked like a mess. And I had the audacity to open my front door and start walking right into the house. And you know what my mom said? What do you think you're doing? You can't be coming to our house looking like this. Take off your shoes. Take off your clothes. You're going right up to the bathtub, mister. That's what we do. Friends, this same dynamic happens in the spiritual life. Our sin makes us spiritually dirty and smelly. And honestly, if you look at the sin of the world, sometimes it's extremely gross or even disturbing. And God will not put up with the people dirtying His house, His temple, His name by their sin. We should be ashamed at our audacity to think that God doesn't really care all that much about our sin. We can just, this is childlike thinking, I can march right into the presence of God, no matter what I've done, without, without caring, I have the audacity that, that, my, that my sin, my mess doesn't matter. But we know that God has compassion on His dirty children. He offers to wash them up, to clean them up, and make them fit to be in His presence. And when they are clean, when He washes their sin, they can come back to the land. They can come back to His house. They can come back to being His people. And God envisions a people who are cleaned up from all their sin, everything washed away, made ready for His presence. And I want to be curious. I want to be clear, God, God loves for us to be in His presence. And our sin doesn't keep us away from Him, but He does want, he does want us to, to, to be cleansed. And we can't have that audacity to say our sin doesn't matter. Yes, He loves us in spite of our sin, but it does matter. And God offers clean us up. But the people need more than just a cleansing. They also need to stop doing the things that made them so dirty and gross in the first place. So God says He will replace their hearts. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. We're also aware of many of the world's problems, our own problems, our family's problems, other people's problems, the problems in the church. And we can generally say that these are typically problems of the heart. You know, initially I thought, well, maybe I should call this point, you know, God, God, God renewing our hearts. But then I said, no, that's not true. That's not what this text is saying. It's not accurate. And I said, you know, replacing the heart almost sounds too dramatic. It almost sounds too intense. But that's exactly what's being described here, is it not? The human heart is so messed up, it's beyond saving. The heart of people was beyond saving. It's beyond redeeming. We can't just put a stent in it. We can't just clear out the blockages. We can't even just put a pacemaker in it. No, the whole thing has to come out. It has to be removed. You need a new heart, says the Lord. You need a transplant because you have a heart of stone, an immovable object that's hard, stubborn, immovable, unwilling. Through the prophets, God has been saying, you are so obstinate and stubborn, O people. But God says, I'm going to remove that and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that's responsive, which, which, not, which speaks not just to feelings, but also to our mind, our thinking and our decisions, our will. 
And according to, to Christopher Wright in the Hebrew idiom, it also speaks to a, a close relationship. Our hearts, our souls will be connected to God, a heart that can hear the voice of the Lord and respond to His leading and be responsive to Him. So the people need no less than a spiritual heart transplant to make this happen. And the Lord says He's going to do this. He's happy to do this, and He will do this. But the Lord is not done restoring. God will also release His Spirit. Not only will they have new hearts, they need God's Spirit in them. Verse 27, I will put my Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. God is resolving the problem that people had under the Old Covenant. God's Spirit would be released, poured out upon the people, not just upon select individuals for special occasions, but a continual indwelling in His people. And notice for what purpose, the Lord says, to move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. The Holy Spirit's main job is to make you holy, to make you walk in the ways of the Lord, to walk in His commands, to be careful to do all that the Lord requires so that God's holy name would be honored as holy, so that the people around us would continue to conclude that there is a different spirit in them than there is in us. There's a different ethos about them. There's a different moral code that this people are following. There's something different going on here, and I can't explain it. And thereby, God would be glorified by such conclusions. Again, Wright says, God will do in and for Israel what Israel's history so gloomily demonstrated they could not do for themselves. God's grace will give what God's law requires. The gospel is already breathing through such texts in this law as it is here in Ezekiel's prophecy. But not only this, God will reestablish His covenant relationship with His people. Verse 28 says, Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. This is the language of covenant. God is reestablishing His covenant relationship between Him and His people, that the people were responsible for breaking. It wasn't the Lord's fault that this covenant was broken. It was the people's fault, but God is going to restore it. Now, Ezekiel doesn't use the word covenant here, but this is exactly what he's describing. Let's remember what Jeremiah prophesied about the new covenant. And you'll see the same wording that coming declares the Lord when I will make with Israel and with the people of Judah. The covenant I made with their ancestors by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because, I, because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And here's the same phrase that Ezekiel used. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Although it was the people's fault for breaking the covenant, God says, I'm going to reestablish it. You're going to be my people again. And not only that, you're going to know me. Remember that responsive heart. It's about knowing and responding to the voice of God. You're going to know me, the Lord says. Not just the priests, not just the, the holiest people, not just the religious people. All of my people will know me. That's going to be our, our, our covenant. And then finally, 
God will rebuild his people and their home. Now, God said he was going to return them, uh, but remember, if he returned them to the land from which they came, all the houses are destroyed, the temple's destroyed, everything is in ruins. And God says, no, I'm not just going to return you. I'm also going to rebuild your home. The blessings of the covenant are being graciously restored, both the land and its people. Now, first, let's look at the land, verse 29 through 30. God says, I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field. Jumping down to verse 33, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. There's going to be some ecological restoration in this promise. They will say that this land was laid waste as become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, they're now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. This is nothing less than paradise being reestablished. The Garden of Eden. But then even the prom- remember the promise to Abraham? that this nation would be great, that you would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so that this promise would be fulfilled continually. God says in verse 37, I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed festivals. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. The people, home, the land will be bountiful plentiful, beautiful, abundant, and like paradise itself. Nothing less than all of this is God's vision of restoration. So let's recap it. Although the people are in exile, they do not deserve any of this. God says, I'm going to restore honor. I'm going to return people to their home. I'm going to remove your sins. I will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. I'm going to release my spirit into you. I'm going to reestablish my covenant with you. And I'm going to rebuild my people and their home. And oh, friend, what was promised then is in the process of being fulfilled now in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God right now is in the process of glorifying his name throughout the earth. Through the cross, through the blood of Jesus and the waters of baptism, we are cleansed of our sins. God has removed them as far as the east is from the west. God has replaced the stony heart with a responsive one. At Pentecost, he poured out the Spirit on all of his people. We are in the new covenant with our Lord as we celebrate during communion. And while the church is no longer bound to the promised land of Israel, we do await our eternal home which will be like the Garden of Eden. It will feel like the home that we've always longed for, and it will be with a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship and glorify our God. And on that day, just like every book on Michelangelo had to be everything that's ever said about God will have to be redeemed because every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, every person will see that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is king, and he is glorious, and it's true. It will be unlike anything we can even imagine. Now, what should our response be to this wonderful promise? Now, I don't know if you heard it, but the passage that was read kind of had a, a downer of 
conclusion. It was like all these amazing things to be restored. And it's like God says, be ashamed of yourselves, people. <laughs> like, okay, well, why? Well, I think we have to be in awe of how wide the disparity is between how wonderful, how gracious, how magnificent this promise is compared with how undeserving, how sinful, and how wicked the people have been. It's like we sing in Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's, it's a grace and it's a promise that's, that's meant to induce a sense of our unworthiness in light of such vast goodness and to draw us to, into repentance and praise. It's like when I had the audacity to walk into my, my house all dirty. And yes, there was a sense of, oh my goodness, what have I done? But then my mom said, go clean up. Come back in the house. You are free to be in my home as my son. We are, under, we are to understand that we are so sinful, wicked, and lost that Jesus had to die for our sins. Yet we are so loved and cherished by him that he willingly died for our sins. The late pastor Tim Keller said it this way, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe, yet at the same, very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope.